Welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing. I'm Saxon Baird with Sam Backer as always, and today we are talking about your uncle's favorite band, particularly the uncle who probably is still single and maybe still rolls around in a van and tells you about the good old days when he was dropping acid. That's right, we're talking Grateful Dead. Sam, why the fuck are we talking about the Grateful Dead? It's because I've got a problem. <laughs> yeah, I, I, this uh, this is a big reveal. Uh, we've been over the last year. I feel like revealing things about our our our, our taste, and and I'm sure that um, people have a very skewed idea of like what that taste is because actually our taste is very eclectic. But uh, yeah, Sam's a deadhead in in a certain in a certain sense. No, I think you were actually Look, straight I, up no, a deadhead. I turned, I like I turned 26 and like a salmon swimming up hit, upstream. I started listening to the Grateful Dead. Um, it was like it was it was in my blood, uh, and there was there was frankly there was nothing I could do about it. There was I tried to fight it, um, I was unable to, and here I am uh, back in the stream from which uh, I emerged. I guess. Yeah, yeah, and to be clear, like there's no doubt you are a deadhead. I mean, you know specific dates of live cassette recordings. You like. You know, randomly, I'll, I'll tell the listeners here, you randomly will send me, you know, somewhere between the hours of 11 and 2 a.m., some obscure video on YouTube of a jam that the dead are doing that has like, you know, maybe like 45 to 55 like views. Like it's uh, you're, 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 you're deep. You're deep in it. Okay, but you're yeah, not also, only deep in it. So I'll give you that credit. No, yeah, and I got I got deeper in it during during the pandemic, which is I think one of the reasons why I got into this episode because the thing is that the Grateful Dead are in many ways I feel like one of the most stereotyped and stereotypical bands, and like everything that you could say about them that is a stereotype about them is in fact true. <laughs> they're indulgent. They're uh, they go on too long. It's often boring. Any stereotype you care to imagine is at some level probably true. But in addition, I was startled as I was learning about this band to find out that really they were at kind of the cutting edge of almost every major development in rock music, not just during the 60s, but not and, and not just during the 60s and not just like to the 90s when they broke up, but more or less their organization continues to be at the cutting edge of the music industry to the present day. And and I think that that's re- it's really interesting. They pops up again and again and again and again as like, oh, who figured out how to do like large scale concert sound? Who figured out how to live stream first? Who figured out how to do their own in house touring like ticketing company? Um, and like, <laughs> who invented um, a whole set of high end noise canceling technology that people now use? And every time it's someone associated with the Grateful Dead. So the question is like why why did this group of like kind of lumpy, fairly smelly, anti-authoritarian hippie drug using hippies what what was going on within them and around them that allowed this band to chart this really unparalleled course through American culture? So this is a conversation that Sam and I have had for actually for many years. And while I am not a deadhead, he has shown me the ways of why they are important when it comes to rock music, modern pop music and its structure and how they actually had some pretty like low key revolutionary ideas in like how to run a band and how to tour and everything. And but I did mislead you at the top of the show because Sam and I have kind of uh, exhausted this uh, conversation between us. You so you decided to talk to probably the most knowledgeable and articulate deadhead in the world, Jesse Jarno. It's a fascinating conversation. There's a lot to learn. So settle in and enjoy. Here's Sam and Jesse Jarno talking the Grateful Dead. Hope you enjoy. Set 
thought it was uh, this is a really good opportunity for me to finally win my long-running argument with Saxon and get to do an episode about the economics and the political economy of the Grateful Dead. <laughs> I'm so happy to, to to help you win that win that battle. Here to here to give you all the ammo you need. So yeah, so we have with us today uh, just Jerno. He is uh, one of the hosts of the Deadcast the official podcast of The Grateful Dead, the author of a number of books. Um, the one we're probably going to be talking about the most today is Heads, A Biography of Psychedelic America, um, which is a, f- a fantastic book. If you haven't read it, you absolutely should uh, go out and purchase it um, or go to your local public library and support them. <laughs> one of the things that's been been fun for me as I've learned more about this band is the fact that they pop up everywhere again and again mm-hmm. and again it's like uh you know the, the, the grail marcus like lipstick traces it's like uh like a skeleton key it's just like connects all these little moments all over for the past half century of american culture um and at first i thought it was kind of coincidences and then i've realized it's very much not <laughs> yeah no they were right in the middle of just this extraordinary you know, social network, for lack of a better phrase, but really right in there and and amazingly, um, amazingly positioned. Even from before they were the Grateful Dead, they were kind of, Jerry Garcia especially, was kind of connecting to a lot of like really sort of deep parts of, of sort of the, the, the folk world, even, you know, people who, who are now like the preeminent scholars of like bluegrass music and, you know, you know, have their PhDs in this stuff are the people that he was like crashing with as a 20 something. So he was like, you know, they were all kind of like plugged into these very deeply into different parts of the world, even before they were for the dead. And yeah, and then that just exploded, you know, and they're just connected to all these different facets of what we think of as, as the 60s counterculture. But in, an, in, in this deeply rooted you know, economic way where they were they were funding a lot of this stuff. You know, they were funding advances in sound technology and they were funding, you know, the, you know, visual artists and kind of, you know, also, you know, pretty deeply connected to this this wide ranging, basically black market economy of 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 drugs and um, other non-monetary exchanges and and in a very self-conscious way, in a very, you know, very very present about about sort of their their role as kind of an economic generator in the middle of this um in the middle of this pretty fertile artistic chaos um and yeah and looking back on it now it's just like amazing seeing all these things how they how they connect together it's like oh you know that guy was in a band with that guy and then started this company and you know that kind of thing yeah no absolutely and in many ways it's fascinating especially um because in so many ways, the model that they establish by, let's say, the mid-70s, uh, early 80s, probably, is kind of, at this point, almost the reigning model of the music industry writ large. Yeah. And so, there's a re- and it's a really fascinating progression to get to that point. And they're, they're not the only band from, the, or not the only institution that came out of the counterculture where that happened. You see the sur- same sort of thing happen in, like, um, underground radio stations that kind of you know flower out of the out of the countercultures this you know free form chaotic we can do anything thing and then gradually sort of piece by piece kind of like like I guess kind of like Animal Farm sort of become you know mainstream rock radio in the 70s and 80s where it's kind of like eventually flattens out all of that you know all that bumpy stuff but but their roots are still are are, are still from this you know total counterculture explosion so the dead were part of what Jerry Garcia called the, uh, the hip economy, um, or they used what he called hip economics. And I, I would be, I would love to hear actual, you know, people who know about capitalism and economics hear what their take on this is. But um, the way he put it was, you basically you you get you get a bunch of money and you move it around your friends really fast. That was kind of his description of it. But what that means in practice is that the Grateful Dead were, were money generators for their their community. And through mainly through touring, but also through recording, you know, brought in all, all, all this money and then could do things like 
have their friends build them extremely nice guitar equipment and amplifiers. And, and that became sort of the basis of a lot of um, innovation in modern sound. The Dead virtually invented like monitor systems, basically, you know, and, and, and you see that like, you know, all down the line in, in, in the 70s and going into the 80s, all these people who were pioneers in various sound reinforcement technologies have roots with the Grateful Dead. Like these are people who end up like, you know, working for Lucasfilm or and actually in somebody who didn't necessarily work directly for the dead, but um, worked at the Avalon Ballroom in San Francisco, went on to design um, noise canceling headphone technology for NASA for the space program based on headphone noise canceling technology developed so hippies could hear each other talk for, between the stage and like the soundboard area at rock shows. Um, so that's like one place where the dead's influence really manifests is kind of this, you know, this um the the you know the lot live sound um but the other part of the hip economy and and kind of what jerry garcia was theorizing about was money that kind of that came in from drugs and um specifically um lsd and weed and in the dead's early days they were um funded largely by owsley stanley who was the um the first large large scale underground um lsd producer in the world uh, in 1965 through 1967 and made um, probably millions of dollars doing that during that period and then turned around and put a lot of that money into things like the dead and into things like sound equipment. He was also pretty obsessed with that, but also like funding the underground newspaper um, or in, in the Haight-Ashbury, the San Francisco Oracle, and, you know, kind of putting his money towards these various, you know, sort of causes and groups. And that is kind of what differentiates that period in some ways between being a subculture and being a counterculture is that they're kind of trying to create this transformative thing where it's sort of self-perpetuating, you know, that there's kind of like they're, they're in this, they're in this bubble. Um, and it worked to, to, to some extent. That's certainly if I if I could ever do if I could do an exit interview with uh, <laughs> with Garcia or or Owsley for that matter I'd love to know how their long term thoughts on on how th on how that that worked out from their perspective but um but yeah that ba that was kind of the basis for the dead but you know a lot of it kind of gentrified into kind of what you were saying into kind of like the pillars of the rock and roll economy um there's um there's a great book also I can't remember the name of the author um called Hip Capitalism. Susan uh, which Krieger, is, I think. Yeah, which is a really detailed case study, kind of about what I was talking about before, about like how underground radio turned into mainstream radio, kind of like tiny piece by tiny piece. Um, but there were also people kind of even in that era who were differentiating between hip sort of hip economics and hip capitalism and the idea that hip capitalism was just kind of putting like a you know, a hippie face on capitalism, that it was just kind of the same thing. It was just like, oh, we have our business, but we make it friendly for long-haired people. And the idea sort of of hip economics, though this is obviously hard to, you know, turn into an actual reality, is, is creating this self-sustaining, vibrant thing that's like a separate system where, you know, alternative currencies can, can be used as long as those alternative currencies, you know, are of some value in, in that case, you know. LSD. Um, so, um, but yeah, it, it, an experiment that, that, that has had a lot of ramifications over, over the decades. Yeah. And I think, I think it's a critically important one because there's this kind of early moment. And then I think, um, and one of the things that you do so well in, in heads is you then kind of trace out it's kind of, uh, the ripple effects through a variety of different kind of ecosystems. But, but as we kind of trace those out, I, I wanted to start maybe taking a step back and kind of situating the early Grateful Dead like in their time and their place. Because I think it's really important that they're not just, you know, they're not in New York, right? They're in San Francisco in the early 60s, which is a really specifically situated place, right? It's a multi-ethnic, primarily working class city still in California, which is about to undergo a mass of both population boom and and has been undergoing a population boom and the largest expansion of um education college education in the history of mankind basically 
Um, so there's this about to be this enormous public infrastructure push. And it's at the kind of crux of all of this um, tech fund. What's going to be tech, but, you know, government military funding on technology that's swirling around Stanford and labs around Stanford in a very intentional way. And not all of that. Only the backdrop, but what you were just saying comes completely to the, the the foreground, which is how LSD even comes into the picture um, in in California to begin with, which is through Stanford and through these institutions that are are really connected to you know the military industrial complex, basically. Um, and that's how people like Robert Hunter, who became the Grateful Dead's leader, you know Jerry Garcia's songwriting partner and the Grateful Dead's primary lyricist. And um, novelist Ken Kesey and other people came into contact with LSD, um, taking them at like the veterans hospitals in like Stanford and Palo Alto, where there were these, you know, programs that were being funded by kind of shadowy forces trying to see what these strange drugs did and using their kind of outlets at these in, at, you know, you know, big colleges and universities to 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 as guinea pigs, basically. Um and the and the dead and you know the San Francisco scene are, are, are one of the things that very much resulted in that. No, absolutely. I mean, it's funny because I mean that's part of like the the legend, right? Specifically, especially around like Kesey, but it's not usually tagged as like early biotech, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. So, so if you've got hip economics as like one idea, right? Which is the idea that we're going to make some money, and you have this amazing quote in the book where they're like. The drug money we made selling drugs didn't feel exactly like our money. It felt like it was wrong to profit off of this uh, consciousness expanding thing. And so we just, A, gave away a lot of acid to keep prices down. And then B, kind of just pumped money out into all manner of stuff. And it's amazing, first of all, that that's true. Like, you know, like Asley didn't go broke, but he was not a, a rich person, you know, by by any stretch. And, you know, li- lived pretty low to the ground through most of through through most of his post, uh, you know, post chemist post chemist life. So the, the hip economy is one aspect, I think, of, of thinking about like this early 60s experiences that really catalyzed what seems to me to be kind of the, the basic like gestalt of the dead's like, approach to the music industry. Um, the second big one, again, from reading your book, it seemed like was kind of the experiences of the acid tests and the ways in which the kind of, uh, multimodal, like community and band experiences of those performances where the band really gelled as a, as a cultural force seemed to kind of carry forward. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the acid tests were these big parties that were, were, thrown by the Merry Pranksters, a group sort of loosely organized by by the novelist Ken Kesey, um, his buddy Ken Babs, and this whole large extended family that included people like Neil Cassidy, who is, who is uh, an inspiration for uh, Dean Moriarty and On the Road, and, you know, a, a significant beat generation character. Um, but the acid tests were chaotic, psychedelic, multimedia parties where the dead were kind of one thing that was happening. Um, there might even be, there might have, in fact, at a bunch of them, there, while the dead were playing, there was often another band playing, like, literally across the room at the same time that they were. Um, there were, you know, kind of early electronic instruments plugged in. Uh, the the Pranksters had an early, uh, an early uh, uh, Moog synthesizer, so that was kind of, like, sometimes going at the same time. You know, light shows, dancers, and all the, you know, like I said, all happening simultaneously. And one of the reasons that's fascinating is that in the in that period, and it's it's pretty symbolic, is because one of the reasons that's fascinating is that in that period, the dead in the sixties were kind of considered part of the background to the, all this stuff that's happening. Like a lot of the coverage of the Haight Ashbury and just the 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 San Francisco scene in general, the music is kind of a background. It's like oh, there was this huge gathering in the park and. People dropped flowers from a helicopter, and there was circle dancing and free food, and then the Hell's Angels were there, and this and that. And the other happened, and oh, like three bands played, and you know, and it, you know, those bands. It's like, oh, that was the Jefferson Airplane and the Dead, and you know, Janis Joplin or something like that. That are now what we think of as like 
oh my god, three legendary bands playing for free in the park on a, you know, summer afternoon. But they were they were the sound they were really the soundtrack to it. Um and and part of just the general ambience basically. Um and it wasn't even really until the seventies when the dead were still around and still active that people kind of realized and looked at them as like, oh, this isn't just you know, they weren't just this background band in, in San Francisco. They they're 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 committed to this cause. Um and yeah, they were that's yeah, one of the and that's one of the things that they ended up carrying with them. Um and that 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 fertile chaos of all that of of coming out of the hate where all these things were kind of mashing together kind of ends up getting mirrored in the parking lot scene um around the dead and kind of just the entrepreneurial scene around the dead which is you know very which is different than the dead themselves you know this this the idea of the hip economy then kind of mirrors out in the parking lot where there's you know thousands of heads you know selling LSD to fund whatever their whatever their you know side trips are you know i've i've met tons of people who've who've sold weed and lsd over the years and all for all of them it's just you know it's like a, it's a side hustle they've all got some thing that they're deeply deeply into and this is you know it's a way way of funding that i'm you know i'm not saying it's like that for everybody but that's you know and the, the dead didn't invent that like you know people were selling weed to fund their music making activities and in, in you know the 30s and 40s and 50s and in, in, in the jazz era and obviously that's a you know big part of of the foundation of hip-hop um but this idea that you can kind of create this alternate economy that's like separate from the mainstream by doing this thing that's like illicit it's, it's pretty powerful um but that definitely you know definitely a big part of the of the jazz world too yeah no and and and, and tying it to the scene also makes it easier to figure out who's part of it who's not part of it who can kind of fit in who can play the social cues it's a yeah. it seems like a less risky way of doing some of these illicit economic stuff that can bring fairly high profits for fairly low amount of um goods sold without the kind of um the, the danger of a more transactional relationship around it right i hadn't thought about like the social cues as being kind of like like a gateway gatekeeper kind of thing but you're but it, it totally is that it, it's that too <laughs> so so the final the final thing i feel like that really sets this economy apart right is this idea that comes from the diggers of free and i'm wondering if you could say again like say a little, a little bit of the diggers and then kind of how that echoes because yeah. that's really the thing is the most famous thing probably about the dead's relationship to their music and their spin on kind of a political economy it's just how much of their music they give away Right, right, right. Yeah, so that's what I was going to say is that, you know, one of the things that differentiates it from a black market, and again, I don't know how the actual terms for this are, is it's sort of a black market with an ideology, <laughs> you know, and I, I don't know if that's a common thing or not. Maybe it is. But like I was saying, there are these other currencies that exist in, in this black market, LSD being one of them, kind of weed being one of them, music kind of being an income source, but free, the concept of free. Um, which is basically another way of saying energy, you know, free human energy um, was was a huge part of that, too. And a lot of kind of the political basis for that um, came out of this group called the Diggers, who were they kind of grew out of like the San Francisco street theater scene. That was sort of what they started as. They were that like it was, mimes originally, right? Yeah, well, the San Francisco mime troupe was or I've actually seen it. But I think it might be pronounced the meme troupe, which is hilarious as well. Um, Whoa. <laughs> but um, were, you know, street theater people and this idea of like guerrilla street theater that you're kind of like busting down, busting down the fourth wall, kind of collected, connected to like the living theater in New York, um, who are also deeply, deeply connected to kind of the emerging counterculture. You know, a lot of this stuff kind of had germinated over over you know, decades before it kind of popped out in San Francisco. Um, but the, dig the diggers were street theater um, and but radical anarchist street theater. Um, and they didn't really get called anarchists, but that kind of what they were in sort of the mutual aid sense. I mean, that's literally what they were is mutual aid anarchists um, that they were, you know, feeding. They would basically um, like one of the things they had was a free food program where you know which makes it sound kind of organized and 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 whatever but um 
they would spend their you know fan out across San Francisco like in in you know the morning and like collect you know like one day old bread or you know a couple of pounds of meat that fell off the truck because they were friend you know knew somebody and they would make this digger stew and serve it for free in the park every day at whatever time like 3 p.m. or something like that and that became a thing where they would be feeding people every day um and it was it was conceptual it wasn't just food kitchen it was you you uh to get the food the food you stepped through like a giant it's like a six foot picture frame called the free frame of reference <laughs> and you know <laughs> and the whole idea you know they, they were trying to like not just feed people but like you know kind of give them this this radical idea of free culture that it's free because it's yours it's free because you know everybody is deserving you know it's you know obviously it's you know an idea which still hasn't totally <laughs> taken off in in culture but is kind of at the root of a lot of um trend you know transactions afterwards especially as kind of the 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 idea of the hip economy kind of morphs into the mainstream this idea of free becomes really and is still actually pretty contentious it's still you know kind of right you know there's all this you know because now free is sort of the basis for the entire internet economy and, yeah. and and I, I really think grows very much out of the, the tendencies of this, you know, of the 60s of, of free shows in the park, free, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and but now free is, is it's a very different kind of free. You know, it's I, I remember there was a, a and I, I write about this in heads um, like the Dave Matthews band played a huge free show in uh, Central Park in 2003 three i think but to get it you had to like find like an a it was aol whatever whatever net company was funding the whole thing you had to like find an aol van and sign up and like give them your you know sign up for a mailing list or do this and it's like well that's not that's a that's not really free you know um so the it and so i find it interesting that they how committed they were to this idea of free and genuinely free um, and what that means from an economic perspective and from a transactional perspective, like what are you, what are both sides giving up in a transaction? And I think that's a lot of what they were calling attention to by saying there's a free store or a free clinic or, you know, this. And they had, they actually had a lot of issues with the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, which is still around and a, a, an extremely radical outgrowth of the 60s. Um, and, and, you know, far be it for me to like, bad mouth the hate had ashbury free clinic but one of the issues that they had with it and i'm i don't know sort of how this manifests currently is that to you know get treatment you had to you know give your name and and you know it wasn't totally anonymous it wasn't you know you you, you became part of the system somehow by 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 going there so they were re they were calling attention to that to sort of the the yeah the, to the system man but but that's a valuable thing to be calling attention to um, especially under the guise of free and what that means. And so I guess in in kind of dead world, it's this, it seems to me that this kind of is uh, responsible or that these tendencies are responsible for kind of the most famous dead related free thing, which is the tape trading scene, which is this kind of really revolutionary um, decision in a moment when, and by now we're like kind of out of the 60s into the 70s, they're one of the last groups standing and this kind of revolutionary decision and a moment when a lot of bands are fighting bootlegs, like Led Zeppelin doesn't really like bootlegs. Dylan is getting, you know, the basement tapes are out there and the Grateful Dead decide that kind of to look in this benign neglect, right? That as long as people aren't making money from it, they're more or less okay with fans trading tapes. Is, is that accurate? Yeah. And that certainly came part of out of the part out of the diggers and out of the free philosophy of San Francisco in the 60s, which then kind of turned into the early free software movement in the 80s. You know, there, there are lots of very real connections. But I would also add that maybe the bigger reason for this was connected to actually something even more radical than, than free, or maybe not more radical, but equally as radical, is uh, how much the Grateful Dead hated cops and how much the Grateful Dead hated being accused... Jerry, the biggest insult to Jerry Garcia was to to make him be a cop, and so in every or or any member of the Dead, and you see them talking about taping 
and they all say we didn't want to have to be an authority we didn't want to have to be a cop um and that that goes completely at every every juncture in grateful dead history that's that's a deciding factor is them not wanting to be authoritarians um and uh there's actually some pushback there's some funny pushback so the the taper section started in 1984 that was when they officially sanctioned it which is yeah like you were saying amazing this is like the height of reaganomics literally the height of reaganomics 1984 and they're like it's free it's yours take it um but there's uh, a grateful dead fanzine uh called michael m-i-k-e-l that that recently got scanned and went online and, and went online um and there's an editorial by him in an issue from like right around um, right around then. And he was saying, grateful, you know, it's basically grateful dead shows should be responsible anarchies. We shouldn't, they shouldn't, they shouldn't have to police us like that. We should be cool enough. Like the, so the reason that they actually instituted the taper section was because uh, people were, were setting up microphones in front of the soundboard and blocking people's views and, and making it, you know, taking up people's seats and, and, and kind of just being unruly and sort of saying, oh, no, no, we have more right to be here than, than you do. Um, and that was when the dead felt they had to codify it and say, okay, fine, we'll like make a section where you guys can all be. So this editorial was basically like, this is the great, you're, you're making the dead be cops. This is terrible. You know, we should all be anarchists and be responsible and be cool about this. Like, don't sit in somebody's seats. Don't, you know, don't, don't, don't make this hard for the band's crew like we're supposed to be evolved. We're supposed to be higher consciousness. We're supposed to be, you know, we're not supposed to have them like write this into a contract that this is how we're supposed to behave. Um, but yeah, it, no. It, so it's fast. I love that that was somebody's read on the situation, and it's totally true. And it's you know, I love that take. But looked at it, the bigger picture, it's like, oh, this is a very sage business move where they're giving this away for free. But it's it's like kind of in the weeds of the moment. It's you know, part of it is out of you know laziness and not wanting to be authoritarians and it's yeah it's it's a fact it's just such an interesting historical juncture and, and decision and it, it also strikes me as something again that like comes out of this like acid testified um vision of the world where the audience is part of this experience which means that like the audience is wanting to engage with this music the idea that, that the music is shared between a band and an audience and if that's your philosophy, the idea that, well, yeah, they, they're all taping the music and trading and as long, you know, they're not making money off it. So what's, what's the problem? Right. And, you know, part of that directly connects to what I was saying before about Jerry Garcia being part of this, like, incredibly connected social world before he was in the Grateful Dead. He was a bluegrass tape trader. You know, he, when he was 21, 22, something like that, he drove cross country with a friend of his to go attend bluegrass concerts and tape bluegrass bands in clubs and hang out in somebody's basement and copy bluegrass live tapes for a week, um, basically, and build up his collection. He was in it um, to learn how to play banjo because that was how that was the way you found banjo licks was to was to hear how the people did it live was to, you know, tape the Osborne brothers was to tape Bill Monroe and whoever his, you know, banjo player of, of that particular tour was that was how you picked up the latest new the latest new banjo tech basically techniques um and he so from him for him from his perspective he totally understood that wanting to kind of like understand the music in in a deeper way um so i think that was that was very much a part of it was was you know that that connection to the the the, the deeper musical world and you know they and even even more deeply than that, you know, the Grateful Dead's music was not really served by record companies. That's a huge thing to understand as well, is that the model for 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 record companies was, you know, when they started like one or two albums a year. And, you know, by the by the 70s, that became one album, you know, for a lot of bands, one album a year. And then every other year now, obviously, we see press cycles that are much longer than that. But the dead, the dead existed as a live band the same way people like Bill Monroe and the bluegrass boys existed as a live band. You know, they made their living playing radio stations and, and, and touring on that circuit. And for, for the dead, like albums were, were, were one tiny part of what they did as musicians. Um, and so the live tapes was, it were a better representation of who they were. 
And I think they, I mean, I know they recognized that, that that was that the, the thing that the fans made by creating this kind of ad hoc distribution network was um, better a better way to distribute their art than, than record companies. You know, the dead were extremely slow about making albums, but you know, they write a song and, and get it out through the through the fans. Everyone will know it by then, you know. And it's not really selling about selling records. It's about you know getting your art out there and getting your vision out there. And obviously, that's had a lot of long term ramifications um, because now they've got this enormous archive of of tapes to go back to that they can you know keep selling and keep pulling out of out of their tape vault. It also is really interesting because it, it, I also feel like because of this orientation towards free, especially with tapes, um, though, like maybe uh, this like crucial mixture of like hip economy and free, like that part of the payoff is the community and part, I mean, in the tape trading networks, you I know you're not supposed to pay for it, but in the, the broader kind of entrepreneurial networks that surround the dead as they tour across the country again and again and again and again every year there's this kind of um you know i think there's this really canny and pragmatic though maybe not i guess i think intentionally pragmatic maybe not intentionally canny sense of like uh that initial seems to me that that, that um uh again in, in the book there's you have a line about what, how bear sells his acid um and it's that you give away a lot of free, so it keeps down the price, but you need to have some money floating around because then it gets out there because like we still live in a capitalist economy. And it seems like the mixture of the free and the allowing people to be selling cheeseburgers, people to be selling their own t-shirts, people to be selling a enormous variety of paraphernalia, both drug and band related, does create this... Uh, allows this flourishing of this whole world of people who are deeply invested in this community experience. Yeah. I mean, the combination of those things, like the taping, the, the LSD, the sort of the economy that people call Shakedown Street, which is which is the, the parking lot scene outside of Dead shows, all of these things together kind of turn the dead into, into a temporary autonomous zone. You know, that's the, the Hakeem Bay term where you know in in that in that space you know sort of laws are not exactly suspended but they're also non-existent in that in that little space and you kind of have that you know that's sort of the in some ways kind of the ultimate goal of of the counterculture except to have it manifest everywhere but you know that's kind of why the, the the dead parking lots were considered these sort of magical magical little zones dangerous too in a lot of ways for, for different reasons but um but yeah absolutely and yeah all of that stuff fed fed into it in in, in different ways and then what's kind of amazing and again this is like taking like a bunch of steps back but just trying to think about this like as a, a as a way to deal with the music industry is that what's funny is that by allowing all this stuff to happen around them money that they are not the band is never going to see and they know and they're not trying to you know crack down it's my sense is crack down on t-shirt sales or make sure that people are only buying cheeseburgers from the venue um that also allows them to have this stability and touring universe that allows them to tour everywhere and allows them to keep their thing going it's a it's a complete economy almost <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, one 
missing piece that we haven't really talked about that that I think is 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 really inter- significant to think about in in this whole arc of the Grateful Dead is that in the early 70s they started their own record company um which is to say they're famous for this hands-off approach to intellectual property but they were also at least in this period you know we're talking 1973 to 1976 really committed like actually financially personally committed to creating um a truly independent record company like down to they were they went to the pressing plant and like you know over like oversaw the 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 pressing of the vinyl they were like literally you know like exploring the ideas of building a distribution system from the ground up and actually talking about deadheads as a distribution system and thinking about that consciously like in their business plan in 1972 when they made a business plan for the record company um and they own their own touring agency like they own their you know their own travel agency um for them it really was there was it was very self-contained and very self-conscious about being creating their own economy that um and that collapsed kind of in 1976, 1977 for a, a few reasons. One was that they spent a whole lot of money that they didn't have making uh, what became the Grateful Dead movie. Um, and they sort they hit a financial wall. And that's, you know, kind of one of the huge what ifs in, in dead history is if that <laughs> if they had not spent all this money on the movie would, you know, with their whole system of 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 owning their own, you know, travel agency you're you know having their friend own a travel agency and owning their own record company where all of this have panned out um so in that and then they what happened was you know they basically got bailed out by the traditional music industry they signed a you know big big record distribution deal with united artists and then um a, a new contract with arista in the in 76 77 and kind of spent the last decade or so of their career not recording albums but kind of existing at least in the wings of the traditional record industry until they had that huge hit in 1987 um which then paradoxically generated all these huge new fans that then funded their their ongoing you know parallel economy of the grateful dead universe um you know that's another thing that people forget about the dead is that they're thought of as a 60s band or a 70s band, but they made way more fans in the 80s and even the 90s than they did in the 60s and 70s. Um, like, you know, the amount of people going to their first Dead show in the 80s and 90s and, like, having it change their life and becoming <laughs> Deadheads, you know, that was more a thing in the 80s and 90s even. So like, the average age of, of Deadheads by throughout the entire history was people in their early 20s like there would be these audience surveys in the 80s and the 90s and even after that and it was always you know people in their in their 20s seemed like they were like the big the main audience it's it's so i'm thinking about this a lot because like like i said at the kind of the beginning of, of our talk like i do think that in many ways you know it's the dead dead's world and we all live in it like music has been in so many ways um decommodified right i mean yes you can make money from streaming but compared to 1975 it's not it doesn't have that it's not the ability to kind of create a bottleneck around a piece of recorded sound and then extract value from that bottleneck which is that the fundamental structure of the music industry for the 20th century really collapses and and so then it kind of seems like what they do is like and again, in this kind of very pragmatic, organic, uh, classically leaderless, decision-averse, brilliant way that it seems like they they did a lot of things, is they they kind of create what 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 would be called now right like new centers of value around this broader set of interactions that what made the dead valuable was their live show and then the world around them. And now everyone, every major artist is trying to create a set of deep fan interactions and cultures as the way to make a living playing music from a little band to like uh, Rihanna and Beyonce. And it seems like that the dead sort of stumbled into that world in a really amazing way. Yeah. I mean, so one, and that's, I, I'm not disagreeing with any of that, but to add the point that 
in some ways, and maybe without being conscious of it, and I bet they were maybe a little conscious of it, they were kind of throwing back to even an earlier era of the, of the music industry, which is the, the, the swing era and the big band era, when and the bluegrass era, for that matter, where, where live broadcasts and live shows were the center of that. Like, the model of making your career selling LPs, well, LPs didn't come around until the 50s, but the model of, sell, of being a... A music star making money off of recorded post Sinatra. Yeah, well, just even being somebody who whose career and income was reliant on recorded music, um, it wasn't necessarily new when the Dead came around. It was pretty established, but I would say that probably didn't even really for a lot of musicians, at least the bands that the Dead were modeling themselves on, become like a thing until, like you know, the 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 fifties, basically. Um, you know, you look at 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 you know, like the groups that people like Charlie Parker came up playing in, like these territory orchestras in, in the Midwest. And their, you know, they were, their big thing was to go to New York and play the ballrooms. And could they make it with the New York ballroom dancers? That was the scene, you know, and 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 who was going to be broadcasting the show. Um, and radio was such, live radio was such an important part of the way music was spread in this country. Um in 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 those eras in the in the in the you know the electrical era like the 30s and 40s basically and the 50s and the dead totally picked up on that too that's another huge thing that the dead were big into was was live broadcasts and they were really the first rock band to do live stereo constant live stereo broadcasts starting as early as like 1968 i think they did their first one um so in that way one of the things that i'm constantly fascinated by is the way this current collapse of the record industry, and when I say current, I mean you know the last twenty years post streaming, but way more obvious now than it was twenty years ago. How much the music industry now like resembles the chaos of like the nineteen twenties and thirties when all these forms were kind of you know kind of coming together to kind of create the standard you know what we think of as like the stable record industry of of the majority of the twentieth century. But how chaotic that was in in those years when you know people were touring and the formats are constantly changing and and audiences are, you know, moving from, you know, you have totally different audiences listening to seven inches and seventy eights and live broadcasts and coming out to the shows. And so it really was pretty crazy before that and even going into the 60s there's uh elijah wald's book how the beatles destroy rock and roll is amazing uh just talking about how vibrant and chaotic the american music scene was before the 60s before the beatles arrived and how the beatles are kind of the 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 turning point into really what we think of as the contemporary structures of the music industry um so the dead were kind of active in in sort of finding their own path while these things, you know, while these structures are kind of coming in around them. And I think that's maybe, you know, I think that's a lot of what we're seeing there. There is a lot of laziness and there is a lot of like, oh, we'll kind of let these things sort themselves out. But there's a lot of willfulness too. I mean, they were, you know, they they knew what they liked. You know, they they really deliberately did a lot of radio broadcasts. They really did a lot of these things with great intention. Um, not necessarily knowing how it it would all unfold, but but you know it was important to them at the time for yeah that makes it that makes a ton of sense. I, I knew about the radio broadcast, but I hadn't connected it to that earlier specifically, especially for bluegrass. Um, how important those live broadcasts were and tapes of those live broadcasts were to allowing that art to flourish. You can also say you know looking at the ways in which at a number of levels the the dead were able to avoid the broader structures or. Uh, interact with the broader structures of the record industry more on their terms than many bands were. And that in addition, so, you know, they, they, they're able to kind of, you know, they do control a lot of their touring for much of their, you know, they've got their own mail order service for, so they're able to kind of like a lot of the money and stuff that's being siphoned off up. It feels like less of that is siphoned away from the band. And then almost maybe because of that, that combination of cheap and free <laughs> that they are are um they share it with their audiences and so in some ways i feel like it is much more of a co-creation than a more traditional band where it's mediated by the record labels yeah that the economy is the band and its fans yeah uh we just interviewed um sam cutler 
for the Grateful Dead podcast. He was he ran out of town tours, which was the the their, the Dead's touring agency. He was their their uh, tour manager for for kind of these early seventy years when they really put their stakes in. And he said, you know, our model and the way you make a band famous isn't through scarcity; it's through constantly coming in and blowing people's minds. You know, the Dead went to New York. It was basically every other month between like 1967 and 1972 or 73. And like if you lived in New York City and were a dead fan, you could see you could see them like 50 times in like one year in like 1970 or 1971 without and still sleep in your own bed after the show. And I know some people who did that and they were really they canvassed, you know, they 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 built an audience by coming through town and creating this experience you know and it's you know the experience economy is is a cliche by this point but that's what they did is they rolled through town and and did something that you couldn't get anywhere else like that was the only only you know the the famous bill graham quote is you know they're not they're not the best at what they do they're the only ones that do what they do and that's in terms of like an experience especially in the early 70s um and in the 80s really in, in the even in through the late 80s that was the only place you could get anything remotely like that and that's become more varied now you know kind of the jam band world exploded kind of jam band club there's now jam band clubs in you know most most towns most bigger towns in this country you know where you can go see a dead cover band at least when there's live music or you know a jam band that the brooklyn bull empire yeah yeah exactly um and but that wasn't the case then that was you know they were that was the place to do it there was you know that was that was disneyland was the grateful dead show there was there was only one it's before before i'm not gonna push that further down the the disney metaphor but uh yeah i know they they but they they created something really i mean so that's another thing one more thing to add is that they were I mean, it's not like they were opposed to scarcity or or pro this or pro that jerry garcia just liked to play and one truth of the of the matter is that the dead were more demand on the East Coast than they were in the Bay Area, like through the 70s and into the 80s. Like in the 80s, you could like into the mid 80s before the dead had their top 10 hit with Touch of Grey. You could go see Jerry Garcia in a bar. You know, if the dead weren't on tour, Jerry was probably playing in a bar or, or a club or someplace pretty small, like more weeks than not when the dead when the, when the dead weren't on the road. And it probably wouldn't be sold out. Like that didn't become a, like it was you know there was there was an overabundance of Jerry Garcia in the in the Bay Area between 1966 and 1986 I would say and then around 1986 is when he had you know his health crisis and his well, <laughs> the first giant manifestation of his health crisis <laughs> an ongoing health crisis which is a, a coma um, and then when he came back out of that then then that was kind of when every show everywhere was sold out all the time but before that you it was it, it wasn't quite that it was still you know it was still pretty accessible i'm just going back to what you said about the, the the you know the experience economy which i agree is now at this point kind of a cliche but i i really think that there's something profound there in that if we think about like you know the the apps and uh companies that have created the forms of social interaction, forms of social media that uh, enable the experience economy. If you think about Instagram, we think about Facebook. Those are all, you know, they're Silicon Valley companies that come out of the same cultural milieu as the dead. And I, d- I don't think it's a coincidence. Oh, it's not. I mean, I guess just one that I'll throw out is uh, GroupMe. I don't know if you know GroupMe, which is, it's, you know, it's a text, it's a, it's a texting app. I think Microsoft owns it now. But it was started by it was started by hippies to meet up, be able to meet up with each other at shows, um, and it's now become a pretty standard. You know, like I said, acquired by Microsoft, it's their group texting app. And you know, I know, for example, just from like you know, I know nurses like there's like groups of like nurses and people use it at their workplaces, and it's kind of like part of the standard like repertoire of of communication things now. And like I said, you can find deadheads at so many companies like that. You know, I wouldn't. I certainly would not claim Facebook is a deadhead company. I hope it's not, but I'm positive there there have to be deadheads there, you know? <laughs> you know, it's it's Yeah. But but even more generally, I feel like rippling out like almost as, I feel like they create like a model for a you know, 
an early model for like a post-industrial music economy where the goods are no longer the primary vector of value. It's the, you know, there's like a, a, a John Barlow quote, I think, that um, he says like, well, we're not selling music, we're selling community. And like, if you're thinking that you're selling community in the 80s, like you're 40 years ahead of your time. Yeah, and it, well, it's true in that sense that people, you know, when you bought a ticket to see the Grateful Dead in the 70s and the 80s, you know, part of it was buying a ticket into that world, was to know, and, and the Grateful Dead's reputation was that as early as their very first tours, that they were bringing this thing with them. They were bringing this whole San Francisco experience with them, and they embodied it more than any other band, even more than the Jefferson Airplane, who were a huge top 10 band in the 60s. Um, because the Dead were associated with the acid tests, especially because they were associated with Owsley, um, they had this thing around them that always that was always there you see it in the like the very first press coverage of them outside of, of the bay area there's just this like energy field around them this chaos field around them this this psychedelic thing around them that when you were going to see the dead that's what you were going for and in the 60s and early 70s that you know the rest of the world is a little bit like that as well but even then there was like recognition that there was something different um about about the dead they weren't they weren't just you know and that that very you know that carried on into the into the 70s and obviously and very obviously into the 80s like that was a huge part of people's um experience in the reagan years is that the grateful dead were kind of this like you know like portable you know portable city is one of the phrases that i i use in heads but you know this place where you could go that wasn't ronald reagan's america that was something else that was you know you're you're crossing a line and you're you're back on free turf you know and i can't imagine how reassuring that would be in like the ages before like the internet like it, it was such a the dead scene was such a big tent in that way like if you were basically if you were like any kind of freaky person you know that wasn't part of like the mainstream definition of you know and i'm it gets complicated when you get down in, into into race stuff here, but if you were you know basically a freaky white kid, I guess is what is you know sort of what it comes down to is that the Grateful Dead were this place where you could go and you would be outside of of the the, the bullshit of whatever part of the country you were in. You know there were so many punk kids who were into the Grateful Dead. It wasn't you know like people that that it's such a classical thing to set up the Grateful Dead versus you know punks and you know there's lots of anti-dead punk no the ss the sst folks were into the grateful dead yeah and and not just you know like yeah i was gonna say not just the sst folks but the meat puppets were totally on sst and sonic youth were on sst and you know there's you know there's a whole there's a whole thread it never you know it's always there's always that that thing and you know i guess one example that i love to use that's pre before all of this is the late 70s is keith herring who you know we think of as this you know, New York 80 is, you know, gay pop artist. Um, but in the 70s was this kind of, you know, a long haired questioning kid who is taking acid and trying to figure out his place in the world. And the dead were kind of the first safe zone that he found where he felt comfortable um, and was a really intense deadhead for like a year or two, you know, selling bootleg. You know, he made that's the first art he ever sold was it was a Grateful Dead bootleg shirt that he made. Um and that became kind of his portal to the that was sort of a, a stepping stone into kind of the world outside his world was the was the Grateful Dead. And I think that's, you know, there's, some, there's something about the way they operated was, you know, making making all kinds of spaces. You know, there was it was there was kind of this promise of promise of of, of anarchy in the most in the most open way, you know, not not destructive anarchy, but but you know, supportive anarchy, I guess. Um, and, then, yeah, I think that was part of the promise of, of who they were. Um, so yeah. Well, I, I think that's about it. <laughs> um, if you're into this, definitely check out the Grateful Dead cast. Um, so, again, thank you. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Sam. Really appreciate it.